Hey guys, how's it going? Okay, I'm glad to hear. A few of you are doing okay. Some of you look spaced out. I know it's Sunday morning. Like the weekend's been long. Uh, hey, every every year around this time, we like to do a week or two where we just talk about vision. And so we wanted to do that a little bit today. Uh, it's it's a little bit of an unusual Sunday. It's not connected to a series or anything. As uh, you've heard a couple times this morning, at the movie starts next week. We are really excited about that. Hope that you will join us for that. Hope you'll invite people to that. That's going to be super fun. Today we want to talk about a vision, both for our church and then God's vision for your life. What we uh, how we understand that. And uh, to do that, I just want to start off by defining what it is that we even mean when we're talking about vision. This is not my definition. It's one that I found years ago that I found super helpful, so I've been using it ever since. It's simply this. Vision is a mental picture of what could be fueled by a passion that it should be. A mental picture of what could be fueled by a passion that it should be. So if you're looking out into the distance, right, on the horizon, of it could be a number of things. Right? It could be of your life. It could be of your family. It could be of your, your business, your organization, of your hobby. What does what the future look like? What, what could it look like if you continued following a particular path or trajectory? What would you like for it to look like? Do you have the passion to believe that it should be like that? That's what vision is. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, just, just vision. And specifically, uh, what is the vision, right, if we're looking off into the future? What are we trying to accomplish here at Inland Hills Church? And then what is the vision that God might have for, for your life? And I'm sure most of you live your lives, you know, going and finding a hill and standing in the, basking in the sunlight as it, as it sets every night to, to make dramatic photos. Uh, so, so we thought we would talk a little bit about that today. That's really it, which of course leads me, and I, some of you saw this coming from a mile away, uh, to notable moments in Bigfoot history. Can we talk about that for a minute? My, <laughs> all right, well, here's, here's a few of them. This will make sense, maybe. All right, so in 1967, there was a Patterson-Gimlin film that was released. So if you've ever seen that Bigfoot film where there's like a very out-of-focus Bigfoot across a river, and he's just kind of like walking, and then eventually like kind of like turns toward the camera, right? And then just continues to walk in the woods. That is this famous film. It's been tried to be proved to be authentic or, or disproved to be inauthentic ever since it was really released in 1967. And this was a big deal at the time. People started to really believe in Bigfoot. Another notable moment in 20th century Bigfoot history uh, was obviously the release of Harry and the Hendersons, right? 1987. And after this came out, lots of people were buying like Bigfoot shirts and Bigfoot bumper stickers and all this kind of stuff. And then uh, more significant to my personal family, is that my kids in 2019 found out about Bigfoot. They discovered that that was a thing. And they became a little bit obsessed, especially my currently nine-year-old Jack. Uh, when he found out that, that Bigfoot was a thing, he was just like, oh my gosh, dad, I think Bigfoot is real. And I was like, I, he's not. Bigfoot's not real. We've never found a body. We've never felt like this people made a cell. He's not real. And he was like, no, no, dad, you're wrong. He's real. To such a degree that for a while, we, when we had, we'd have babysitters come over to, to babysit them, Jack had made a poster in his room. And if you went up, it said, uh, it just said, does Bigfoot exist? And there was a yes column and a no column. And he would hand the babysitter a sticky note. And they'd have to write their name on it and put it in either the yes or no column. And if they said Bigfoot doesn't exist, he was highly suspicious that they, not, they may not actually be able to care for him. Okay, it was like, oh, he was really, really into it. So I thought, we had some time this summer. I thought, you know what would be really fun? is if we did something Bigfoot related while Jack is still super into it uh, for part of our vacation. I thought that would be really like a fun time. And I found out that in Willow Creek, California, which is really close to where they filmed this Patterson uh, Gimlin film, uh, they have a Bigfoot festival every summer. Yeah, 
you didn't know your life was missing something this awesome, did you? Like, so they, it's like a, they have a whole parade full of Bigfoots. I have video footage of this, you guys. Like, I'm not going to show it all for today because, of course, I want to spread this out over multiple Sundays. But, um, but we decided to go to this Bigfoot festival, and we thought the night before the Bigfoot festival, we would go into these giant redwood forests that they have in that area, and we would go Bigfoot hunting. So we did. So I spent a few weeks uh, or, or a few, few days in July. My son Jack and I went into these redwood forests like in these trails like at midnight uh, with nobody else around, with nothing but headlamps. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. Uh, this is one of the trees that had fallen that he, uh, he went inside of. And then he was looking for evidence, obviously, of Bigfoot's existence. And so he found this broken tree branch. And he decided that probably the only reason that a branch of that size could fall off a tree is if Bigfoot walked by and knocked it down. So this is, this is obviously definitive proof of Bigfoot's existence. Are you not entertained? Like, I was like, are you persuaded? Do you find it convincing? Just wait, we have others. Uh, he also thinks he found a footprint. You have to squint a little bit to be able to see that maybe it's a footprint. But then he pulled out his Bigfoot evidence kit, which we literally purchased off Amazon, and um, <laughs> compared the size, right? He's, he's got a thing there that shows the size. Yeah, Bigfoot evidence flags, he's got them taped. I mean, this guy is legit, okay? And then, <laughs> and then the next day, uh, we, we took uh, uh, both the kids and we went to the Bigfoot Museum, which they have in Willow Creek there. Yeah. Yeah. Your summer feels pretty boring now, doesn't it? I'm sorry <laughs> that you didn't get to experience all this. So needless to say, I've been weirdly thinking a lot about Bigfoot lately. But one of the things I've been thinking about is, is why we so want Bigfoot to be real. Because what's funny is, is I've, I've shared like way more photos than this with some friends and stuff over the last few weeks and, and stories about what we did and what we saw. Every time I talk to someone about this, and like, I, I don't really believe in Bigfoot, uh, but every time I talk to somebody about it, they always, there's a point in the conversation where they're always like, yeah, but wouldn't it be really cool if we found one? <laughs> and yeah, of course it would be really cool. Why do we want that though? Why do we hope that the world is a little more enchanted than we think it is? Why do we hope that the world is a little bit more mysterious and a little bit more undiscovered than we know it is? Why is it that we long for something to exist just out of the edges of our knowledge or maybe perhaps the boundaries of our campfire? Why is it that we hope that there is more? What's interesting to me is that the world has changed a lot, even just in my lifetime over these last 20, 30 years, it's changed dramatically because of the internet and because of the smartphone. I mean, those two things combined with social media and some other things, like the world has become less enchanted feeling in many ways because of those things. I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, you could sit at a dinner table, right, with your family and you could argue for 45 minutes over whether it was uh, Nick Nolte or Gary Busey who started in 48 hours, and no one knew. <laughs> you couldn't, like, pull your phone out and be like, see, well, Google says, well, Wikipedia says, well, IMDb says. No, no, you had to just fight it out and see who had the most persuasive argument. At the end of the day, if you wanted to settle it, you had to drive down to Blockbuster Video and grab the movie box and look at the back. Like, that was the world. But that means there was so much that wasn't just available at your fingertips. And so there was a lot about the world that was just, it felt unknowable or mysterious or like it would take a lot more effort to find it out. The world just seemed a little more enchanted. And I am technically, um, uh, I, am, I am technically a millennial. I was born in 1981. So I'm what um, Eliza Schlesinger has called an elder millennial, right? 
It's like a grandfather mother like, oh, come on, millennials, gather around the Snapchat and let's have a discussion, right? That, that's, that's me, okay? I'm that age. Um, so I'm technically a millennial, but I'm like, right at the end, right, psychographically, I'm probably somewhere between Gen Z and a millennial. And I just, I just read an article this week in The Atlantic called The Millennial Pause, which I had not heard of before, uh, but it made me feel even older than I already feel every day. And it essentially said this, um, Gen Z now is making fun of millennials in many, many ways. But one of the ways that they're making fun of millennials is in what they call the millennial pause. When millennials make TikTok videos, they hit record and they always pause for a second to make sure that it's recording and then they start talking. That's because lots of us remember like VHS cameras and stuff that like, you know, is it recording? Is it on? Is it really on? Okay, I'm gonna do it. And then you do 30 minutes, right? And then you're like, oh, sorry, it actually wasn't on. It wasn't on? Like that's, this, so we always wanna make sure, right? Even Taylor Swift, who's pretty cool, like she's still doing the millennial pause and Gen Z is just making fun of millennials for everything. Gen Z is going on the internet and on social media to make fun of millennials. Let me just try to explain to you why this feels so disheartening if you're like around my age, okay? Um, we grew up with the internet. We were the first generation that really like by the time we were in middle school, like we, we had it. And so social media, that was our, like we owned social media, okay? Facebook was only available to college students for a while. So that's where we would go and make fun of older people. And so we would, we would that, was, that was ours. And then they were like, you know what? We'd make a lot more money if everybody was on it. And then you remember those of you who are like in your like 30 to 40 years old, you remember when your parents first signed up for Facebook or when your, or when your aunt or uncle did, and it was just like, oh, this isn't cool anymore, right? Like immediately, <laughs> this is not cool anymore. I can't post anything that I used to anymore. It, was, it just, it was this major shift, right? But so in our minds, like we owned the social media space that was ours. Now Gen Z is here and it's like they've kicked us off of our own land. Like it's, you know, like they're making fun of us in, the, in, the, in the, our stomping grounds. It's like coming into someone's home and like making fun of them to their face. It just feels really disrespectful, if I'm honest, okay? So, so that's, that's, Getting older, right? The, the world feels less enchanted and more confusing. The divide between the generations greater. It's just the world we live in has changed dramatically just in the last few decades. There was a time not that long ago, right? Early 20th century, when for most people, the way that they saw the world was that they, they basically stood between the sacred and the secular. Lots of people felt like, you know what? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so, um, uh, or I'm a Christian, or I have some kind of religious uh, background or, or, or beliefs, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some things that have to do with that sacred part of the way I think about the world, and then I'm also going to, and then I have a job to work, or a farm to take care of, or family to work. There, there's, a, there's a secular part as well, and those two things, they don't really live in tension. They're both just part of me. They're part of my makeup. That was, I mean, early 20th century. That's the way most people in the U.S. thought about things. Most people in Western culture thought about this, this thing between, like, the sacred part, the religious part, maybe, and the secular part, the non-religious part of their work life. And then in just a, just a few years, by the time we hit the 60s, the 1960s, like things had changed dramatically in regards to that as well. By the way, uh, just, a, just a note here. This divide between the secular and sacred that people saw in the early 20th century, it's not a, it's not a Jesus concept. It's not the way Jesus saw the world. Jesus seemed to see the world that all of it was sacred. Everything was spiritual. And so, yes, you're part of a church community maybe, and you show up and you and you worship together, and you read the scriptures together. And, and that was sacred, but it was also sacred to go and work a job and to provide something that someone needs, a good or a service that helps someone else, because all that's part of taking care of God's good world. That's the way Jesus saw it. But by the 20th century, it's, oh, it's a secular and it's sacred. And, you know, there's, there's pastors and priests and popes, and they do all the sacred stuff, but then we do some of that, but we also do the secular stuff. And that, they just saw it kind of divided like that. 
But then as we went through the, the, the 40s and you know, World War II and people came back and there was kind of a bit of a revival movement in the United States because people had seen a lot of people die and it seemed like, like we must not be doing something right or there must be something more than this into the 50s and 60s. And then we started seeing the fracturing of trust within American society. We had the assassinations of uh, JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. And, and others. We had you know, Watergate and the Vietnam War and it just it felt like our institutions started to lose trust as we saw over and over again, our leaders fail us, or our leaders fall, or our leaders get slain. And so increasingly, there was a divide, and increasingly, it became more and more okay not to believe something around religion or faith. In fact, if the world is spinning, and it feels like all these things we have thought were were trustworthy for so long, seem to be tilting off of their axis. Like, what, what do we do with that? And lots of people tried to find consolation. Like, okay, we just need to search the truth, what is knowable, right? It all needs to boil down to, like, science or math or economics. It's like it's something I can wrap my hands around. Like, that's the kind of world that maybe we should move into. And so there began to be this divide between the secular and the sacred, both by people who would consider themselves in the sacred and by people who would consider themselves in the secular. So, for instance, you had the moral majority movement with Jerry Falwell and others that started feeling like, you know what, we're trying to live as a sacred people over here, and the world's trying to infringe us. They, they are a danger to us. They're trying to restrict our religious freedoms, and, and they're not morally where we are, and we need to fight for the soul of America. So you had that group of people, while at the same time you had people with, like, for instance, in the New Atheist movements and in other places who would say things like, well, actually, religion is the problem. It's these people who are trying to, to turn this country into some kind of theocracy where it's no longer a democracy, but it's ruled by their God who we don't even all believe in. They are a threat to us. And so there started to be this fight. And instead of someone being able to sit, right, between the secular and the sacred and feel like, actually, I can kind of like embody both of these spaces and that's okay, we actually started to see people battle it out. There was a fight between the secular and the sacred. So if, if you've been to a church before, and you feel like, man, that church doesn't resonate, or I, I just don't, you know, maybe you went to that church, and you were looking for something of the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. But what you actually heard, or at least picked up on, whether it was explicit or implicit, was that this church is a group of people who are kind of living in fear or in anger, and they primarily see their role as protecting themselves, their beliefs, or uh, their interests from the world beyond them. And so they're trying to gain, right, financial power or political power or, or just cultural opinion power, whatever that is. And they're just, they're trying to like mark themselves. They are circling the wagons and they are, they are terrified that they're going to be overwhelmed by the world of the secular, that it's going to come in and push them out. For lots of us, we, we've been to a church like that or we've listened to a pastor teach like that. And it's just felt like, ah, I'm not sure that that has anything to do with Jesus because the reality is right in the first century, when the very first Christians actually had the chance to be martyred, killed for their faith, they still didn't hold it in such a way that it was combative against the secular. That's not the way they thought about it. In fact, they believed that as followers of Jesus, they were to live and they were to be for the whole world, not against it, but for it. And so then they, they were looking to build a bridge from where people were to Jesus. They're like, Jesus has made our lives better. He's made us better at life. We believe he's created us with a, with a plan and a purpose, and that he has that for everybody, and we want to invite you into it. And so instead of like circling the wagons or being fearful or like trying to push people out, they were invited, they were constantly doing everything they could to invite people in. It's why the apostle Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that some 
might be saved. It's like, I, 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 to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Okay, but Paul, you already were a Jew. But yeah, like, I became like a super Jew. Okay, like, I, I, I observed all the things that they observed. I, I, I sat with them in the way that they would find most helpful. I became like such a good, observant Jew to them so that they would give me a hearing. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. When I was with Gentiles, all those Jewish observances that I had practiced faithfully my whole life, but that were not part of the kingdom of God, were not part of the the incoming kingdom of Christ, I set them aside. How uncomfortable, by the way, would that have been to set aside all the ways you have ever behaved in the world in order to meet someone where they are? Not in a sinful way, not in like, oh, I'll just act hard. No, no, but I'm going to set aside the customs that I've always observed and have always been meaningful to me because it's not meaningful or helpful to them. And so he sits with them. I've become all things to all people so that some might be saved. And see, when we buy into the like secular versus sacred, and this thing's been going on, right, for the last number of decades, when the church starts to just fight like that, we actually don't create space to invite people to come in. We, we, we're not all things to all people so that some might be saved. In fact, the only place that this leads to is apocalypse. <laughs> like, it's just ongoing fight, right? Fight, fight, fight. And who's, who, who in the world then is going to stand in the gap today in a fractured and divided society and be willing to say, like, actually, we're not here to win. We're not here to fight. We're not here to protect. We are not fighting for the soul of America. We are trying to help heal the soul's of Americans, and that's very different. One is a defensive or aggressive posture. One is a handout to say, can we help? Here's, can we introduce you to something that's changed our lives, that's transformed us? So when I'm thinking about the vision, right, of Inland Hills Church, it's not a vision of trying to protect or defend or push for more economic power, political power, or cultural power it's, it's really trying to recognize, like, the culture has changed. It has shifted. We've gone from sitting comfortably between the secular and the sacred to ha- having a fight between the secular and the sacred to saying, like, you know what? Actually, we want to return to what we think the church did really well in the first century, which was to make space for the sacred and the secular and to say that all of it is spiritual. It's all spiritual. Here's the opportunity we have, by the way. Uh, because we all long for enchantment, many Christians, right— we, so we struggle with our faith, we struggle with doubts, and, and many, and many non-Christians struggle with not having faith. There's a lot of doubt that we are all living with right now. In fact, um, James K.A. Smith, in his book, How Not to Be Secular, uh, wrote it like this, and I think this is really helpful. He says this, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. Now, I realize uh, for some of you, faith probably does come very easy for you. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and, and it's just a narrative that you've always found to be helpful, and the scriptures have always been helpful. And so as you became an adult, you slipped right into that. Church attendance was regular. Serving was regular. That's just, that's, you've seen it modeled your whole life, and it, it never really felt very hard for you. That's probably a few of us in here. My guess is that for the vast majority of us in here, that is actually not our story. It's not mine. Faith has never come easy for me. I struggled, like really struggled in adulthood. Like, do I really believe this stuff? Or is it all just a fairy tale that we're telling ourselves to try and sleep better at night? 
Like, are, how have other people thought about faith? And how have other people thought about, you know, what is real in all of this? What do others say about Jesus, about the legitimacy of Christianity, or about other religious traditions? I struggle with that. Faith is never come easy for me. My, my, uh, my wife, Emily, has a, a grandmother. Her name is Sue Kendall. And I think faith has comparatively always come fairly easy for Sue. But she's, she's such an encouragement and an inspiration to me. Her husband passed away just recently, a couple weeks ago. He's, he's in his 90s. He lived a very full life. His name is Cecil. And uh, we're, we're, we're sad that he is gone, but we are thankful for the life that he lived. And um, my wife then talked with my grandmother right after that happened. So she's just lost her husband. And she just said, uh, Sue, how, how can I, uh, well, she calls her grandmother because that's her name. Um, she's, uh, grandmother, how, how can I pray for you? And Sue just said, you know, if you could just pray that the, the joy of the Lord will sustain me, I'd appreciate that. Man, that is, those are the words of a faithful woman who's followed Jesus closely for her whole life. It's a tough thing to be thinking of right after you lose a spouse or a loved one. But that's what she thought of. We used to joke that, um, you know, all of us have a prayer line to God, but that Sue seemed to have like the, the red line, right? Like that went straight, straight there. Um, like if Sue prayed for something, it seemed like it always happened, like no matter what. And it, she got such a reputation for it in our family that um, when, when my wife still remembers when she was younger, her parents, uh, the washing machine, clothes washing machine broke down. And her dad uh, didn't, didn't want to spend the money to get a new washing machine. He was hoping to just, you know, do a few repairs. But Sue thought that he should get a new washing machine. So she said, well, I'm just going to pray that that one breaks then so that you have to get another one. So he didn't even wait for it. He just went out and bought one that day. He was like, no, I mean, like, if she's going to pray for it, it's going to happen. So we might as well just go and spend the money. Like, that's her reputation. Like, faith, faith hasn't, faith seems to come easier for her than it does for many of us. And while I'm inspired by that, it's, it's actually not my personality. And it may not be yours either. You may find that faith is more difficult for you in this modern age where we don't live increasingly, it doesn't feel like we live in an enchanted world. It doesn't feel like there are a ton of mysteries. We're trying to figure all this out. James K.A. Smith is just honest about this. He said, look, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by inescapable sense of its contestability. Like, it could be otherwise. He goes on to say this. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now, the apostle Thomas who doubted that Jesus had raised from the dead. This is so important, by the way, because for many of us, we grew up hearing some version, either in church or from other people who went to church, that, that faith and doubt were in opposition to one another, right? Like, like doubt is a threat to faith. And so if you have doubts, you just, well, we don't ask those questions here. We don't say that out loud here. You don't share that here. You just need to read your Bible and pray more, right? We kept, ask, we kept answering fact-based questions with faith-based answers. Like for many of us, doubt was a threat to faith. But what's actually true is that someone who has a faith but is wrestling through questions and doubt, the doubts and the questions are often evidence of a more vibrant faith. It turns out faith and doubt are not oppositional. Faith and doubt are wonderful dance partners. And if you're really wrestling through, thinking through faith, having a little doubt asking some good questions can be really helpful, can be really helpful. He goes on to say this, though. This is not just about those who already consider themselves Christians and wrestling with that. He says this, but almost as soon as unbelief becomes an option, right? The, the, the option to not believe in God or not follow after Jesus, almost as soon as that becomes an option in the public square, as it has been for many years at this point, unbelievers begin to have doubts, which is to say they begin to wonder if there isn't something more. They worry about the shape of a world so flattened by disenchantment. 
which is true. I don't know how many of you have friends who are atheists or agnostics, or like, but if, if you'll have a really honest conversation and you go beyond just the like tit for tat, let's argue my fact and yours, and that's, that's almost never a helpful way to approach anybody in the first place, it's, it's almost, you start to get around to kind of the Bigfoot thing. Well, I'd, I'd like for there to be a God. I wish there was a good God. And so sometimes I wonder if that's true. So we find ourselves not, not so much these days in a battle between the secular and the sacred, even though the church keeps trying to fight that battle and keeps losing that battle. We find ourselves not so much in a battle between the secular and the sacred, but a conversation between those who have found the sacred to be helpful and those who are in the secular and at least considering the sacred. So what does any of this have to do with Inland Hills Church? The church in the United States today is almost perfectly calibrated for a world that no longer exists. The arguments that we are making, the things that we are pushing for, are not helpful to the vast majority of people who are far from God. So what Inland Hills is trying to recognize, and, and it, it, this is not new for us here, I'm just stating it again, maybe you're new, or maybe a refresher is helpful. We want to be a church that unchurched people love to engage with. We want to be a church where people find life by following Jesus. And that's not an excuse to be a shallow church. We don't want to be a shallow church. In fact, to do that, it's going to require tons of us who are actually committed to Jesus and are growing in our faith consistently in order to help those who are on the outside and to pull them in. It takes growth and maturity to not see people who think differently than you as the enemy. It takes growth and maturity to be for a world that thinks maybe some of the things you think are crazy. It takes growth and maturity to live out a life of discipleship where you call Jesus your Lord and your boss and you model a different way to live in the midst of a society that will not always understand that. But rather than seeing them as enemy, to see them as as children of God that he loves dearly and that he wants to connect with, to invite them in to be the bridge builder. That's the vision of our church, to make sure that we are growing and as we grow, we are constantly inviting others into the fold. Not for, this, not for the sake of getting larger or reaching more people, like, like just, or just you know, growing a budget or gaining power. It has nothing to do with that. We just want every church that keeps Jesus at the center of what they do we want every church that keeps Jesus at the center of, of what they do to continue to reaching others because we just believe that those who follow after Jesus will finally live the life of fulfillment and purpose that they've been searching for. And we believe without him that's not possible because we believe he is the creator and Lord of the universe. So that's a little bit of where we're coming from this. A, a passage in addition to the uh, one we talked about earlier from, from Acts 17. And I, I, this is the one I typically just refer to because I think it's really helpful when we're talking about vision. And so if you've heard it before, I'm sorry, but let's refresh. I mean, this is, I've read this story hundreds of times and it, it always is helpful for me. Uh, the Apostle Paul, right? The same guy who says, um, I've become all things to all people so that some might be saved. The Apostle Paul is going to talk to some Greek philosophers and they are not Christians and they are not Jews. They have almost nothing in common as far as religion goes from their backgrounds. They follow all these uh, other gods and they have all these idols in their cities and he's been walking past all of these idols and it's, it grieves him because they, 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 they are spiritual, but they don't know the one true God, he feels. So what do you do? Do you go in there and you just tell them like, you're all wrong, you're all going to burn, you're all, you know, God doesn't, you know, you don't love God like you should. Are you just going to go in and assault them with that kind of stuff? Is it a battle between the sacred and the secular, or between one kind of sacred and a different kind of sacred? No. 
Paul does what I think is a, is a really helpful example for all of us. He walks in and he says this. Paul stood up at the meeting of the Oropagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. Whereas I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So, so in other words, like, you have all these gods everywhere. You're very religious. I even found an altar that was dedicated to an unknown God. In other words, you were like, hey, in case we miss one, <laughs> we'll, we'll just make one to an unknown God, right? We'll just cover all the bases. Just make sure we do it right. Um, so, so you're ignorant, though, of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, another way of saying this, like, you have an unknown God here. That's the God I want to talk to you about. That's, that's the one that's, that's the real one. So he's taking what they already had. Like, this is, they put that up. They put that inscription in, and he is using it as a doorway into their psyche, into their culture, into their hearts. So instead of being combative or circling the wagons or going into attack mode or defense mode, he goes into a mode of grace and understanding. And he's trying to find common ground. In other words, it's like, uh, he's not like, oh, you're so wrong. He's like, no, 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 you're so close. You're almost there. You almost get it. But you, you just, there's some stuff you don't know. By the way, if you're, if you're seeing this, you're like, like, he called them ignorant. That would feel offensive. Like, I wouldn't love that. Like, the, the way that this would have been received, because this was originally written in Greek, right? The way this would have been received wasn't offensive. It was more like, like there's just something you don't know about the thing that you're trying to worship. Our hope then at Inland Hills Church is that we can, following the Apostle Paul's example, continue to be a church that is constantly thinking about how it is we reach people who are outside of the church with the gospel. And that will require us to constantly, as people, grow in our own faith and to become more and more like Jesus because it's hard work reaching a world with a gospel. It's really hard work. So that's Inland Hills, and God has a vision for you as well. And we've talked about this uh, many times here, and so I'm not going to dwell on it for a really long time this morning, but I do want to just mention it. First of all, we just, we just think that this is kind of a pathway that people end up following when they end up trusting in Jesus. The first thing that God really wants for you, we think, is for you to know him. God wants you to know him. And he reveals himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ so that you can. We say that God is mysterious, and that's true, but that doesn't mean that he's unknowable. God being mysterious means that he is endlessly knowable. The more you find out, there's always more to know. There's another level, another level. It's a beautiful thing. And so God calls you into initial knowledge of him, that finding life by following Jesus, there's a starting place. Like, okay, I'm going to give my life to God. I'm going to try to learn, learn who God is. Yes, that's great. But that is a lifelong pursuit that never ends this side of eternity. So know God. Secondly, to discover your purpose. We believe that you were created on purpose with a purpose. So there's a, a large purpose that God created you for. That's to have relationship and love with him and with other people. That's great. But also God has wired you in a particular way. You have a certain personality and passions and a network of people that you know and, 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 and skill sets that you've acquired over time. And, and you can use those things to continue to fulfill that purpose. There's, there are purposes, plural, in your life as well. And we want you to discover the purpose that you have in life. We believe God wants you to do that as well. Third, uh, we believe that God calls us to find freedom. You can't really think that much about your future until you find freedom from your past. And so we just believe that, that God invites us to find that freedom from our past. Uh, I could tell you a lot of stories about this, but, but essentially, even over the last several months, there are a number of you who have reached out and we've, we've had coffee or breakfast or we've had a phone call or we've had a Zoom call or we've, I've been with you in a group and you've told me about some of the things that you feel like God's been telling you to do. Some of you have, have uh, 
gone and you've apologized to, to past friends or coworkers or people in your family. Like you're, you're turning your life around in so many ways. You're trying to mend things. As far as it's up to you, you're trying to mend things and fix things and move forward. It is beautiful to see when people start to find freedom from their past and they don't let that past that they're ashamed of or that they're embarrassed of or that they wish they could take a mulligan on, they don't let that define them anymore. And so that, that's just a gorgeous thing. And I'm really thankful that we see it happening here all the time. And then finally, uh, God calls us to make a difference in the world calls us to actually, so, so the church doesn't just exist in as a resource in order for me to improve my life. The church is a community of the people of God, and while my life will improve if I connect with God, I'm also called to do something, not just to say, oh, great, I, I checked those, I got the things out, things are better. No, 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 like I'm actually, I'm called now to help introduce other people into the very thing that I just found for myself, to know God, to discover purpose, to find freedom, and to make a difference. Now, as we conclude, I just want to talk for just a moment about this last one, especially the make a difference part. Because starting next week, we're going into our At The Movie series. And uh, I'm excited about it. We're expecting uh, quite a few people next week. We're looking forward to it. A number of you let me know how many people you've invited. That's awesome. Next week, we're looking at Jurassic Park in preparation for next week. I've watched this movie like, I don't know, four times in the last month or two. And uh, probably going to watch it again this week. Not because I have to. Sermon's already done. I'd just like to see it again. It's a really good movie, okay? So, um, and it's really, at, at the heart, this movie is about control, right? Uh, this, this guy wants to have control over nature, control over this park, control over this thing, and then, you know, it ends with just a lot of people get killed by dinosaurs, okay? So it's, it's a great movie. Um, it's a great film, and so we'll talk about that next week. We're looking forward to it. But, but that next week starts, we're really kind of moving into the fall next week. And what always happens when we move into the fall is we have more people come, which is great. So I just want to, if, if you call Inland Hills Church your home, I just want to talk to you for a couple minutes as we conclude today. If you don't call Inland, Church, Hill, <laughs> Inland Hills Church your home, that's okay. And we're super happy that you're here and you can still listen. You don't have to plug your ears or anything. I just, this doesn't necessarily apply to you specifically, and that's okay. But if you call IHC your home, I just want you to know, uh, when we started, when we got back in the building last, uh, last April, May, we had about 40 children coming every Sunday at the beginning, right? Now we have 120 plus kids coming every Sunday, and we expect even more. Um, we, we have more students coming than we had coming. We, we're filling this room. We're, we're about to fill it more. Um, that is all great, by the way. I mean, it's great news that over the last year, more people have connected, lots of new faces. A number of you are new even the last few months. I am so excited to see you. And I'm so thankful for the way that uh, people who were already here have made this an inviting place for you. And they are excited that you're here, too. Um, I had someone come up to me in the lobby a few weeks ago, and uh, shortly after I got back from, from vacation, they said, oh my gosh, I walked in today, and there were so many people here who I didn't, didn't know, and I thought they were complaining. And then they said, it was awesome. I was like, great. So they're, they're so excited. We're so excited that you're here. Here's the thing though. We keep offering more for more people with the same amount of volunteers on our dream team. And some of you who are on our dream team are like, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this, this make a difference thing is tough because it actually requires sacrifice. It requires us to spend our time and our energy in a different way than we're currently doing it if we're going to make a difference in the world. And so Inland Hills Church has this, this vision to reach people with the gospel who are far from God right now and to help them grow into full disciples of Jesus. That, that's our vision, our hope, that they may find life by following Jesus. God has a vision for you, that you'll know him, that you'll discover your purpose, that you'll find your freedom, that you'll make a difference. And these two things intertwine really, really well because one of the ways that if you call IHC your home, you can make a difference here is to be a part of our dream team. And when we, we have spots in our production and with our kids' ministry and our student ministry and uh, greeting and, and, and our hospitality teams. We have lots of spots that we need extra people right now because the reality is 
a lot of folks have been coming for a while and you're, you're excited to be here and you haven't joined a dream team yet. And I don't think it's because you're a bad person. <laughs> I think it's because probably a lot of us didn't even know there was a need. And I just want to tell you, as we head into the fall and as we continue to see more people, there's a need right now. There's a need. And so one of the ways that you could make a difference and, and live into this is to help us with that need here at Inland Hills Church. And so here's what I'd ask. If you call IHC your home and you're not currently on the dream team, you're not currently volunteering anywhere, I'd ask that this week, today preferably, you would consider going onto our website, inlandhills.com slash dream team, and signing up to help out over the next couple of months. Here's what we normally ask, by the way. So, uh, no surprises. I'm just going to tell you all right. We, we ask for people to commit to do that twice a month, right? So it's not every week. And the reason it's not just like once a month or once every six months or once every five years is because uh, it, it's helpful for people who come and they come a few weeks to actually see some of the same faces around. It's really helpful for them to feel like they can connect to the church and connect to other people. And ultimately, that helps them connect to Jesus because that's our goal is that they connect to Jesus and have their lives transformed and changed by that. So uh, a couple times a month, and it's, it's people who serve and have that servant heart and get to see what it does for others they oftentimes, they, they, don't, they just don't stop serving because it, it fills them up in a way. Like they, they came to serve, but what they found out is that God's actually filling. There's something about making a difference in the world that also makes a difference in you. And so I just really want you to consider, like, if, if you're not doing it yet, to, to, to come and be a part of our dream team. Now, hey, uh, no surprise, I want to tell you, if you want to be a part of our dream team, we really want you to be. One of the things we're going to ask you to do is to take our, our four-week experience called Activate. And there's some online ways you can do it and some on-campus. And we provide childcare, and it happens on Sunday mornings in, like, August and September. We'll, but, but the goal of, of Activate is to help you really align with the church, connect, and so that you'll know what to do when you go in Philly. So we've had a few people, for instance, who have said, I'd like to volunteer. I'd like to be on the Dream Team. We've said, great. We should go through Activate. And here's all the ways you can do it. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't think I have time for that. And here's what I just want to encourage you to do. Like, you could make such a difference in this church if you'd be willing to be a part of our dream team and be willing to align with us by walking through this. You'll learn some about our church. You'll learn a lot about you, too. We, we, not the band, yourself. You'll learn about you, too, also. You'll learn about you, also. Okay, so, um, so activate. That, that's that's going to be a part of this. But look, before you even think about that or know the time, so don't worry about that. Like, I'm just giving you a heads up so that you know. It's a great experience. People make friends. In there. It's, it's really good. Uh, but inlandhills.com slash dream team, if you can start there, that would be great. And then for those of you who are already on the dream team or are thinking about jumping onto it, we love resourcing you and also helping you. So like, for instance, on August 20th, uh, we're having a day where we're having a dream team fall summit. And so this includes a time of worship together. It's going to include uh, some, some equipping and some breakout sessions. But it also, some of those breakout sessions are around soul care and how if you're feeling tired, exhausted, burned out? What does it look like to find a rhythm with your life so that you can make sense of it? Like, th this really matters to us. And so we believe God wants these things for you. Hey, uh, one last little thing, and then I'll, I'll be done. When I was growing up, I went to Main Street Baptist Church in Grand Saline, Texas, and there's probably a few of you online who are watching who also went to that church, and hi, it's, it's great to see you today, or for you to see me today. It's, it's, I, it's good to see you. Okay, so um, I went to Main Street Baptist Church in Grand Saline, Texas, and as a kid, I, I remember some of the Sunday school teachers I had. We, we had Sunday school back then instead of just, just kids' ministry. We had, we had something we call Sunday school. And I remember some of the Sunday school teachers that I had. I remember Scott Bartley, who uh, actually owned the funeral home in town. 
And so as a fifth grader, I thought it was so cool that I got to ask my Sunday school teacher about dead bodies. I mean, I just thought that was amazing. I would ask him what they did with them, and then he would tell me a little bit of information, and then he would say, well, you're probably not old enough to know that. And I'm like, no, no, now I'm really interested. Tell me, right? Like, so I remember some of that. And I remember, I remember asking Scott Bartley so many questions about the, the Bible stories that we would look at and going through. And, and you know what? You know what he said a lot of times? A lot of times he said, I'm not sure. Let me check on that and get back to you. And he would. He would get back to us. And that was a great answer because I never felt like he was just trying to make stuff up to have us stop pestering him. A little, little later on, um, he, uh, I, I went into another class, and uh, T.D. Wilt, a guy by the name of T.D. Wilt, was my Sunday school teacher there. And uh, we, we, had to meet the, we had to meet literally in a closet. There were like 12 of us, like sixth grade boys, and the only other space they had was just the closet where they kept all the like basketballs and volleyballs in for the gym. And so we, we'd all, all be in there, and you know, door was open, so it would get a little ventilation because there was no like air conditioning. But we were just like meeting, and it, it smelled like gym in there. It was just, it was disgusting. And yet I remember having great conversations about Jesus with TD and with my friends who were in that class. I got a little bit older, I got into high school, and I had uh, Emma and Doyle Milliron. Um, who, when they were younger, had been known across town as being the wild, one of the wildest couples in Grand Saline, Texas, right? And they got a little bit older, and they found Jesus, and they got a little older than that, and they decided to teach Sunday school to high schoolers. And so we had all kinds of questions about how wild they were, right, when they were in high school. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what did you guys do? You know, like that, that was kind of part of it. You know what? I, I only remember the specifics of a handful of conversations and lessons that I heard with those people in those Sunday school classes over the years. And yet, people like Scott Bartley and TD and people like Doyle and Emma, they helped shape and mold my life because I knew from an early age that there were adults in this world that weren't even related to me, that cared about me. I knew from early on that there were those who loved Jesus, and some of them had even lived hard lives, but they had found redemption in a Savior. Listen, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you call Inland Hills Church your home, your church body needs you, and we need your story, and we need our children, our students, and the people who walk in our doors and on our production team. Like we, we need to see the work that God has done in your life that we might experience it in our own. So if this is your church home and you're not on the dream team yet, I'd really encourage you. I, I know it's a sacrifice. I know it'll take some more time, but we just, we want to be a church that's reaching people who aren't here yet, and it's going to take more of us committed to that to do it, and I believe God is going to do more in your life if you'll partner with us in that. EdmundHills.com slash dream team. Check it out today. Be a part of what we're doing going forward. We're very excited about the fall and about all that we hope that God will do. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then our worship team is going to come out, and uh, we're going to just worship God as we conclude today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. And Lord, uh, thank you for people like Scott Bartley <laughs> and for, for T.D. and Doyle and Emma, because uh, what I know, having talked to each of them after I grew up, is that none of them really felt equipped to come in and lead kids or students. And God, I, I remember even uh, the, the gentleman who used to always welcome me to church every Sunday with a smile. And I know that that wasn't necessarily something he ever saw himself doing. Like, you've just used so many people to shape and mold my life. And I know that if I were to go around this room, many of us would have a story like that. 
And so God, I pray that you would, that you would give us a desire to be used like that. That God, at the end of our lives, there might be people sitting around and talking about how helpful we were to them at a particular time by a word of encouragement we gave, a welcome we gave, a lesson we taught, a camera we operated. Um, Lord, Lord, may we be used to impact the lives of others. Maybe nobody else besides them will ever know that we did it. We may never write a book or get, get press for it. And yet, God, I believe the kingdom of heaven will be filled with people whose lives were changed one interaction at a time with those who decided they needed to make a difference in the world. May our church, God, continue to do what we have been doing ever since we started to find those who are far from you and connect them with Jesus. May we help people find life by following him. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Inland Hills Church Weekly Messages podcast. To learn more about Inland Hills, including information about our other ministries and ways to get involved, visit inlandhills.com. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and leave a review so others can find our messages of hope and encouragement. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week.